Hello and welcome. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation's podcast invites you to explore the circular economy, what it is and what it looks like in practice, and of course what it means for all of us through a variety of lenses from food to cities to fashion and much more. My name is Seb and I'm a member of the team here at the Foundation and I'm also one of the hosts of our podcast. Today we're talking about insects. Insects. Some of you might be repulsed by them or annoyed by them, but in today's episode, the Foundation's circular design lead, Joe Isles, is in conversation with someone who believes that they have a huge role to play in securing our future food production. Jason Drew was once dubbed Lord of the Flies by Forbes magazine. He is the CEO and founder of Agroprotein, a South African company that farms insects at an enormous scale. I'll let him tell you exactly what they do in a moment, but listen to this episode to find out how this innovation could potentially preserve our seas and to hear why this is also a story for our cities and of localising food production. This podcast was originally recorded at one of our interactive online events. I'm just letting you know in case there's any mention of online questions or such references. Joe started the conversation by asking what it is exactly that agroprotein does. So in its very simplest form, what we do is we recycle waste nutrients back into usable forms of protein. All we've done in its simplest form is copy a process that has been going on in nature for 108 million years, uh, and we've industrialized it and brought it into the modern age to tackle some of the problems we face in our real world today. So you're collect- you're, are you collecting the food waste in cities? How's, how's it working on the ground? You're collecting some food waste, bringing it to a central uh, location, and then where do the insects come in? Let me explain what a, a fly farm looks like in its simplest format. If you could imagine a very large cage of flies, we typically in a factory house about 8.4 billion flies in different stages of development. So that's more than one fly for every human on the planet, well, at the moment anyway. And we train those flies to lay eggs in one place. We extract those eggs from the cage and we hatch them and then grow them on different waste substrates depending on the part of the world and which of our businesses. And what we're left with at the end is a NPK, that's nitrogen, potassium, phosphate rich uh, soil enhancer and larvae that we then process into protein and oil for use in predominantly fish farms and shrimp farms across Asia. Okay, I mean, I have to pause for a moment and ask how you train a fly, um, ah. because I can't get them out of my kitchen in the summertime. So how how does that work? Well, it's um, I mean the, the whole process of getting flies to to live together is is challenging the sorts of numbers that we're talking about. So if you go back to the very beginning, um, what seemed like a great idea in late two thousand and eight, then set about a chain of five or six years of abject failure. Uh, as we tried to get large quantities of flies to live together. Of course, you can buy uh, hundreds of books, and in fact, there have been probably thousands of theses on how to kill flies, but none on how to make them live. So so getting flies and understanding how to make them live is is, is quite challenging. So we, our early success came really because, uh, I guess I was watching crime scene investigation on the telly with my kids one afternoon, and... I saw this person trying to take uh, larvae and flies off a, off a dead body and to age the body. So I rang up the Metropolitan Police, found out uh, who their head of forensic entomology was, who happened to be a South African, and I asked him if he wanted to come and make flies live rather than kill them. He said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. 
So he now heads a team of uh, 52 R&D specialists around the world, just focus on making flies live. So I mean, could give you some sort of basic challenges. So getting flies to, to live together is one challenge. Again, the mate is, a, is another challenge. We couldn't make flies mate in winter, which was the point at which we really nearly gave the business up. And went outside at the end of winter, so that would be August, September in the Southern Hemisphere, and about to go back and close down our operation, because if it wasn't going to work 365 days a year, um, it wasn't going to be industrializable into a, a real solution. And went outside and saw flies starting to mate. It was very early, coming up to dawn and uh, beginning of spring. And we now know that flies mate at dawn, because when there's two flies together, it's like, you know, discount on a Big Mac, people, you know, the passing bird only has to make two extra swoops of its wing to get, you know, a double quantity of flies. What I didn't know is how they knew it was dawn in springtime. And the answer is, uh, having rung up somebody who wasn't thrown out of school uh, and asked them, you know, uh, what could be the solution? They said, it's very simple because the earth uh, tilts on its axis as it moves around the sun. And this creates uh, summer in the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere at different times. And the frequencies of light to first bend over the surface of the Earth will also differ. So we isolated that down to quite a narrow wavelength of, to the human eye, what looks a bit like blue light. And so then we could take all our breeding inside, away from sunlight, uh, and we could cause breeding whenever we wanted to. It's a bit like um, turning on the slow song at the end of a school disco. <laughs> you, go in, you go into our cages and turn on the blue lights and that causes mating. And did, Winter you, or summer. did you skip that step entirely, just trying some Barry White or something like that? <laughs> no, we tried everything from music <laughs> to humidity to heat to light to noise. And they're actually quite a sensitive uh, creature and they you know, like to be, to be quiet and have a restful time. They like the nights off and like the lights out, like some downtime. And while we're, so, while we're talking about the flies, yeah, there is a specific type of fly you use, isn't it? The, is it the black soldier fly? Yeah, so we, we, we start out using Musca domestica, the, the house fly. And uh, we still play with some of the other 250-odd thousand species of flies there are around the world. Um, but the, the BSF, or black soldier flies, is particularly useful in that it really is an omnivore. It'll eat a range of different uh, waste materials. Also, it only um, eats in its larval stage, so it doesn't eat as an adult. So it's not a pest species. The reason that you consider houseflies a pest is that they live three, four, five weeks as an adult, and they're always looking for food, which is why they come into your house. The, uh, the BSF isn't looking for food because it doesn't really eat as an adult. It's just looking for a partner to mate, lay eggs, and those eggs hatch into larvae, and they eat a lot. Okay, so we've got, I think we're getting a good idea of the, the, some of the specifics of the process. You've brought this uh, cage of billions of flies to life. What are we talking about in terms of the uses? So some of the things that crop up, I was in a pub the other day and instead of peanuts on the bar, they had crickets. Um, so insects for human consumption is one aspect of uh, insects in food. There's also in use for animal consumption. You're talking about using them to process food waste or upcycle food waste. What does agroprotein focus on in that picture? So. If we just go back one step, I mean, humans have uh, demonstrably disliked flies since about three and a half thousand BC. Know this because on the side of the pyramids, there's a, a hieroglyph of uh, uh, slaves holding a 
uh, an umbrella to keep the sun off the pharaoh and somebody to swap the flies. The first person to really use flies uh, in any useful manner was Genghis Khan, who would never go into battle without flies. So what he'd do is he'd go into battle with a wagon covered with uh, rotting material, uh, flies would lay their eggs on it, he'd hatch the larvae, and he'd put them onto the wounds of his soldiers. Um, that was uh, retried by uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's generals uh, until he banned it. Um, and in fact, uh, larvae are now used by the National Health Service, both in uh, the UK and in Germany and in other parts of the world increasingly, to clean wounds that are not treatable by modern medicine. So flies have a lot of uses, um, and we've had a fairly poor relationship with them in terms of understanding what they do and the use they can be. But you wouldn't be here today uh, if your ancestors hadn't eaten larvae and grubbits and flies. That's what they ate um, right up through until humans started settling down 10, 12,000 years ago and farming. And of course, everybody in the West, um, uh, sorry, most, a third of the people around the world probably eat uh, insects in one form or another. And the Western world has forgotten that actually it loves insects, but it only loves the insects of the seas. Mm. So lobsters, shrimp, uh, mollusks, those sort of things. They, they clean up waste in, in the sea, just like um, flies and other things do in, in, in the terrestrial world. So insects for food is, is something that is, is definitely growing. And I think um, things like crickets uh, are really useful in that sort of world. And they have a much better... Uh, name than the black soldier fly. When you think about it, um, uh, we adore monkfish. It used to be called dogfish for centuries. So it was only thought fit for the dogs. Named it monkfish, everyone loves it. Perhaps the black soldier fly needs a, a makeover. I mean, if you get something like the mealworm, which uh, one or two companies use, um, you know, it already sounds quite attractive. It's a, it's a meal, it's a worm, it's less hassy than something that's, um, you know, a soldier and a fly. Um, and they're very unsoldierlike. And they don't fly much, they just potter around, really. So that's a call out for our viewers at home, I think. If you can come up with an appetising name for the black soldier fly, um, send them into the comments and we'll, we'll put them to Jason and see if he can sign off on any of those. Um, what about this point around animal consumption then? So um, using, this is about using the flies or the, uh, the fly larvae the for... For, for feed for other animals. Talk us through that. So the difference is, is feed or food. If you think about a fish, a fish leaps out of a stream and grabs a fly because that's what it's always done. A baby fish will go down to the bottom of the river uh, after it's just been hatched and eat the eggs of other fish or the eggs of insects like a mayfly that might have laid uh, its eggs in the water. So they have been eating flies forever and day. If you think about a chicken in the field, a free-range chicken, what does it do? It scratches and it pecks, and it's looking for worms, it's looking for larvae, it's looking for ants, it's looking for, uh, for insects. That's what they do and that's what they eat. And in fact, uh, at, at, at home at our farm, if you look at the chickens, the place they go first and foremost to look for larvae is in the dung heaps. Because they, like Genghis Khan, have an understanding, innate, not obviously technical, that when a cell is breaking down in nature, two things want it. One is bacteria and the other is larvae. So therefore, larvae have some of the mess, best antibiotic, uh, which are called antimicrobial peptides, which they emit naturally to kill bacteria so that they can eat. When an animal eats those like a chicken, that natural antibiotic goes through to the chicken and its offspring. So it's only a natural process, and that's what's really interesting. And that's what fascinates us. So yes, um, food for... Uh, 
for humans or feed is very interesting. But the thing that we concentrate on is feed for animals. And I think there's two reasons for that. Firstly, the market is immense around the world. And secondly, we are devastating our seas through the excessive fishing and production of something called fish meal. So fish meal uh, is hoovered up in the southern hemisphere near the pole. Uh, small fish, plus anything else that happens to get caught in the nets. Uh, mince it all up, cook it all up, then ship it to the northern hemisphere to put into fish farms, where, of course, the food ratio is negative. I mean, you know, you're going to eat somewhere between 80 and 100 tonnes of food in your life, depending uh, on how long you live. And to show how inefficient you are, you won't weigh anywhere near 80 or 100 tonnes. The same thing is, is true of other animals with one stomach. They eat more than they put on weight to themselves, called a food conversion ratio. So fish farming is... is, is as it currently stands, although they've made huge strides, not frightfully sensible. It works for supermarkets because you can get a farmed salmon, a farmed trout, a farmed sea bass on Thursday afternoon rather than having some fishermen explain why the shelves are empty at your local supermarket because the fish weren't biting. So that's why we're really interested in the, in the animal side of it and the uh, production of feed for animals because it's a large industrialised marketplace it enables us to, to concentrate on a, a few buyers and, and, and focus on the technical um, similarity between uh, flies and its replacement, which has been fish meal. Uh, of course, we only started really using fish meal once we discovered sonar at the end of uh, the last World War, because then there was no more fishing. It was just called catching because you just went to where the fish were. And this is this not either fair or a good uh, way into the future. But getting rid of uh, waste or... There's no such thing as waste, really. There's just stuff in the wrong place. And converting it back using a natural process into something that we really need has to make sense. Um, and that's what we do. We've got some good questions coming in. So thanks for the people who are sending those in. We'll get to them in just a moment. Some, uh, some questions specifically about the, the alternatives or um, the criticisms. But we'll get to those in just a moment. I just wanted to ask what the impact is currently or the potential impact that you can see for um, when this is rolled out more widely or, or, or today. So I'm still talking about um, whether that's carbon savings or um, land that doesn't have to be used to grow food for animals. What are, what are the benefits of this? I, I guess there's two or three things. Firstly, uh, if you Take, so a typical factory of ours takes 90, over 90,000 tonnes of organic waste that would, organic material that would otherwise go to landfill. When that breaks down uh, anaerobically in landfill, of course, it emits uh, nit uh, a whole host of, um, uh, of CO, from CO2 to methane and everything else that, that is harmful in terms of emissions. Secondly, there is always the, the possibility of leach from landfills contaminating water tables, which is why around the world, most countries from the Middle East to Americas are, are banning organics to landfill. And the third thing is, I guess, we, we desperately need new novel sources of, of protein. And at the same time, adding organic material in the form of what we call insect frass or insect, uh, it's the compost that's left at the end of the process, back to our soils makes sense. You see in the United Nations, 61 planting seasons left. You know, we're depleting our soil so rapidly that to put our organic waste into landfill and holes in the sea, or, or sorry, holes in the land or back out to sea is really not sensible. 
And so at AgriProtein, within our, uh, our three brands that we, we operate, in fact, as the Insect Technology Group, AgriProtein is just one of the brands, we take a, a, a range of organic waste substrates and convert them back into protein and soils uh, for use in a circular fashion back into, back into the world of agriculture, as has always happened in nature, but we've just got so distant from the nature that we've forgotten. But, but I'm thinking if, if you think about all of the food that's going to, into animal feed now, uh, through things like uh, fish meal you mentioned, um, do, you have a, do you get a sense of how much agriprotein type technology could replace? Um, do, do, we, do we know? Is it, is it half? Is it, is, it, is it all of it? No, because so um, animal feed is a bit like human feed in one sense. You feed, you know, small babies very concentrated protein in the form of milk and that type of thing. Um, and then as you get older, you need, you know, as a human, um, you can probably live on uh, very well on just a vegan diet. But, but most humans would like a bit of protein, a bit of starch, and a bit of carbohydrates. And it's exactly the same thing for an animal uh, in that the farmers are trying to get uh, the best food conversion ratio, so the least input to the most output, and that is a balance of those things. So we concentrate on only feed for monogastric animals. That's animals with one stomach. That's uh, fish, chickens, pigs, uh, cats and dogs, funnily enough, and of course humans, which is why we're well adapted to eating insects and always have done. Whereas a cow can make all of its amino acids, these are the building blocks of protein that it needs, it can do that because it has multiple stomachs. Uh, single stomached entities like us can't do that. So we need to consume some of those uh, proteins in a complete form uh, or eat a much more complex diet. So the future, animal feed in the future will be, it'll have to have some diversity to it. This isn't just a one size fits all. Oh, no. So an animal diet is always complex. Um, and there's a whole industry, huge industries around uh, nutritional balance for animals to make sure they get the correct mix of nutrients and uh, proteins that they need to grow. So we will only ever be the replacement for the complete protein part of that. So that's fish meals used in agri agriculture uh, in predominantly, and of course in, in our pet foods. The concept of waste does not exist in nature. Everything is food for something else. A leaf falls from the tree and it feeds the forest. Insects consume and process waste and in turn become valuable sources of protein for the rest of the ecosystem. So what we've heard so far is that AgriProtein's solution is truly nature-inspired. And it's a neat story. Take some organic waste, feed it to larvae to eliminate that waste, as well as producing two useful byproducts, feed for animals and organic fertilizer for soil. Two extremely valuable byproducts. But we're going to interrogate this a little bit more. And Joe next asked Jason, what role do cities have to play in this story? Does it help to relocalize food production, for example? So we target cities with probably at this stage more than a million inhabitants. Um, and that gives us more than sufficient waste to build one or two factories around those type of cities. In the Northern Hemisphere, the waste pits are always to the east of cities and the Southern Hemisphere to the west. Uh, that's where the waste is currently transported. That's driven by prevailing winds. That's why the East End is cheaper than the West End in, in the Northern Hemisphere and very often vice versa in the Southern Hemisphere. So we interrupt those supply chains. So we provide a lot of... Um, uh, less 
ton, I mean, waste costs money to move a ton per kilometer, uh, you know, per ton per kilometer distance moved. And so by interrupting those, we can make protein much nearer to the cities that generate the waste. And that's helpful and useful. We also then don't need to, for example, move fish meal from the southern hemisphere where it's produced to the northern hemisphere where it's consumed. We can make protein uh, in the northern hemisphere where it's used. So cutting down on carbon miles, cutting down on landfill, uh, and cutting down on, uh, or rather starting to, to generate uh, some reasonable volumes and contribution towards adding compost back to our soils. And you, you, we haven't actually spoken about where this is happening now. I mean, you, you, you've given us some, uh, some you've suggested there is this uptake around the world um, and certain countries are more open to uh, this development than others. But where are the hotspots now? Uh, I think everywhere is a hotspot. Each market is, is very different. So, um, and we have the, the two major with the input, which is the waste, and we have the output, which is the protein and the soil. So you can't move the waste. So you need to have, therefore have your factories near the cities. You can't move really the compost. Uh, so you need to put it in or factories in countries where compost has a value. For example, in Hong Kong, it has no value because uh, there's no agricultural business on the island of Hong Kong, but a huge amount of waste. So it's also driven by gate fees and people's understanding of you know, how much it costs to, to get rid of waste. So Europe uh, is, is a very interesting market. Our first factory will be complete in the Netherlands in, uh, I think, March or May next year. Uh, our factory in California is complete uh, structurally. It'll take another year to finish our permitting there. We're also pushing quite hard into Asia, uh, particularly into Japan and South Korea, uh, which have very developed food collection and separation structures. And we add more value than just composting that waste because we produce protein from it and we also produce compost. So around the world, it is, it is beginning to take off. Then I think you know, we'll see in, in later years a more diverse structure where uh, smaller communities are able to um, process their waste and then transport uh, the larvae and the compost for further processing at central locations. So with anything, you start with you know, the larger scale things and then move down the chain to smaller opportunities. And you know, it takes as much effort from us in terms of construction, commissioning, biological teams, uh, to build a smaller factory as it does to build one of our standard 250 tonne a day input uh, of waste factories. Do, do you run into any uh, any challenges around where you put these? Because the, when you described it, a cage of uh, how, how many billion, eight billion flies, it's, um, do people not want that near their house? Well, I think there's two or three things. Um, you know, we, we run a biosecure facility. We don't want anything coming in. And we don't want anything getting out. Uh, just because uh, we happen to farm quite small livestock, it doesn't mean we want our livestock to disappear. Um, and so we run biosecure facilities. We also use the black soldier fly, which, as I mentioned before, is a non-invasive creature. So in the unlikely event we have a tornado rip through the middle of one of our factories, then uh, the, the flies are in cages, within cages, within sealed rooms, so there may be some escape, but very unlikely. And even then, if you look outside wherever you're sitting today, there are already as many flies as the environment can contain. 
if you were to add loads more in there, they would die off quickly because there's not, even if the environmental conditions were perfect. And so uh, where you are today, it might be a small number of days a year in which the conditions are perfect. And if it was cold, uh, any escapees would last a very short period of time, hours. So, you know, we build our factories in a, in a, a, a logical, coherent manner. They're designed to, to maintain the best conditions for our larvae and our flies at all their life stages. And in countries like California, one has to comply with earthquake codes so that even in the event of an earthquake, uh, there's unlikely to be uh, any risk to our factory situation. So, you know, uh, uh, a factory is a very large and very expensive thing to put together. Uh, and it's very well engineered and designed to be fit for purpose. So we've had a question here from Gary who says, I get frustrated when I hear about ideas like this because they seem so logical and simple. Why isn't this happening more widely? Why can't we just get on with it? So I think there's two or three things. Um, it's, it's a very be easy business to conceptualize. It goes on at small scale around you all day long. To get it to a large industrial scale has taken us, as I said earlier, many years of failure and probably $50 million of investment in the early stages. Uh, we raised another $105 million next, last year, which will uh, help us build the next couple of factories. But with a factory costing, you know, sort of $40 million, um, it's a capital intensive business as well. To get it right at the scale that regulators, cities, local inhabitants and governments will enable and facilitate and take seriously. So it's not that easy a process. If anything was easy, everyone would do it. <laughs> okay, more difficult than it sounds then. Um, I just want to take off, us off in a couple of different uh, angles here. You mentioned earlier, you said it a couple of times during this conversation that agroprotein is just industrializing something natural. Isn't the industrialization of natural processes kind of what got us into the food system that we have at the moment and with all its shortcomings? Because plants grow and um, you, can, uh, you could go out and pick an apple off a wild tree or some blackberries probably at this time of year. Um, but the industrialization of those natural processes comes with its own uh, downfalls and, 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 and problems. So is that, is that a safe route to go down? Well, if you look at um, how on earth we're going to feed 9 billion people, you need to look at things a bit differently. So, you know, every day there's 375,000 of us born, 170,000 of us die. That means that this evening 205,000 more people will sit down for supper than had breakfast this morning. So how on earth are you going to feed these people? And the answer is not by cutting down uh, more forests to provide more farmland to grow more things, uh, nor is it by fishing harder and deeper our seas. These people are... Uh, have a right to, to food as much as the previous generations did. It is, as I see it, only a peak population issue. And I think we've pretty much cracked the population growth issues most places in the world. Um, and I, I say that because if you look at the World Health Organization report on, uh, on populations, you can see some clear trends. So you need, if every woman in her lifetime has 2.1 children, the population stays flat. People look at Europe, where the rate, birth rate's fallen to 1.6 or 1.7. Without migration, our population would shrink. And you look at 
places like uh, Pakistan or Brazil, and you see very large growth rates for the nation as a whole. Actually, it's not true. Uh, what's true is that in the countryside, they have birth rates of over four, four and a half. In the cities, they have birth rates less than that of Europe, like one, 1.1. Because in the countryside, children add to your economic activity. In cities, they detract from your economic activity. So in truth, cities are the only form, effective form of contraception that mankind has ever invented. And as everyone is moving to cities, I believe we only have a peak population to deal with. And as people move to cities, there is less opportunities for us to uh, potter outside and go and find a, an apple tree. And because cities are built always on our prime farmland, so uh, every, mega pop, every mega city in the world is built uh, on flat land around river estuaries. I think there's only two cities in the world uh, with mega populations or very large populations that aren't built on city estuaries. It's Johannesburg um, and uh, another city in India, which I can't remember, um, which were recent creation, Johannesburg, because of the, uh, um, uh, of the gold rush. And so otherwise we build cities on our best farmland and we can't afford to continue to do that, nor can we afford city sprawl. What we need to do is build up and let people live together where you can deliver education and healthcare and other vital things. Um, but we can't necessarily provide green spaces for everyone to go and pick their apples off wild trees. So this is about a better, it is, industri it is industrial, but a better form of it that doesn't look like the industrial systems that we've had in the past. I, I guess it's less bad, you know, um, the population growth is what it is. Um, I've explained why I think it is only a peak population will hit. And in that time, we need to make sure that everybody can live as well as they can, given the resources we have, which are limited, and if we're not to be constrained by those resources, we need to think differently. And we need to get on repairing the future. Thanks for that. I, I have a question here about biodiversity, um, which we haven't really got into very much um, so far. Um, but I, I know it's something you're, you're passionate about. I was reading another interview that you've, uh, you did where you said, the current mass extinction of insect species concerns me more than the plight of the rhino as it will have consequences for food production and biodiversity that we barely comprehend. Uh, building on this idea of agro-protein as an industrialised natural process, what is the link between your process, your technology and, and biodiversity or, or insect diversity? Well, I, I think it's probably easy to separate that out into, into two different questions. Um, you know, we are, through the uh, wanton use of pesticides, wiping out entire uh, ecosystems, and we really don't understand the connection between insects and what they have done for humanity, um, or very little of it. So we need to keep biodiversity, and as we wipe out insects in cities, as we wipe out insects in fields, you know, everyone's aware of the problem we have with our bees at the moment, who on earth is going to po pollinate uh, our plants? Uh, and this is a challenge. So that's, that's one side of the biodiversity and why I'm particularly keen about them with insects. You know, everyone can see the rhinos disappearing, being hunted to extinction, um, but few people really get excised about the disappearance of another few 10,000 species of, of flies around the world because we wipe them out with pesticides. Um, and all of those things have a particular gap in nature. And, you know, and 
And what do we do into that space? Well, fish meal is produced by catching wild fish that are ground up, um, uh, you know, beginning up, you know, it goes as bad as krill fishing, which is really taking the, the, the bottom of the food chain. And if it's humans, we're eating to the bottom of the food chain. And it's easier to catch krill than it is whales because people don't like whales being hunted, but they don't notice krill or care about krill, on which whales and many other uh, fish species uh, survive and thrive. Um, if we can leave more fish in the seas, which we can do as a result of uh, replacing fish meal with uh, what we do, this is a better thing for the, the billion plus people who uh, live on subsistence fishing uh, to survive and indeed uh, our industrial agricultural processes that for the moment still use far too much of our natural resources. Um... So food waste is a really important part of the agroprotein process. Um, at the same time, as we said at the top of the show, food waste is such a problem and we're told that we should be trying to reduce it. So how much food waste is acceptable? Very little is the answer. But So we've got two different types of food waste. We've got the pre-consumer waste and the post-consumer waste. So pre-consumer waste uh, is, for example, you imagine peeling a potato to make potato chips from, and you throw away those potato peelings, or you can repurpose them into the uh, agricultural sector. So that's pre-consumer waste. Then you've got post-consumer waste, things that have gone off, out of date, um, or you just simply haven't eaten at a large buffet and get thrown away after that. And those are two different um, substrates that can be used in different marketplaces in different times. We also have a a third business in the group that concentrates uniquely on manures, everything from human sewerage to animal manures, and converting those back into uh, useful protein rather than putting them into the seas or into huge uh, pits in the ground. So, so we're looking at the whole food, pre-food, post-food, indeed post-animal post, uh, post uh, usage. Um, and I think as we get into a more sustainable future, we need to really close the loop on everything from pre-consumer, post-consumer and post-consumption waste uh, so that we really repurpose everything from uh, food waste to manures. We've spoken a lot about flies. I feel like I've had a crash course in uh, the um, mating rituals of flies. But what about other types of insect? Uh, any interest there? Are there, are there other types of insect that you could see uh, expanding your operations to in the future? So we probably put um, uh, about 2% of our R&D budget into looking at uh, other insects and other insect types and looking at what they can do. And there's some interesting early work being done on things like the wax moth and whether they can consume plastics and lots of other insects. You know, I, I think we're probably 10 or 20 years away from understanding how much we don't know. Uh, and it's exciting, um, but in the short term, we keep a very focused eye. We need to be a commercial business because we need to generate profits to go and build more factories, to go and do more good. And without that, it doesn't work. So we, we allow our teams to, uh, to dabble in the future, but we also remain very commercially focused on addressing the real issues now, here today, because if you don't address those issues, then it's nothing else but good ideas. The world's full of those. Um, what you need to do is have good ideas that are implemented and work. I heard spiders were particularly tricky. Have you, ever, have you looked at those? 
Uh, they I eat each other, don't they? I uh, was a podcast this morning about the Australian spider life, uh, from jumping spiders to everything else, and they're a fascinating uh, creature. Um, but no, it's not something we focused on. We really think that there's two or three fly species that are uh, really going to be very useful in our uh, closing a loop in agriculture and helping to, to tackle waste. I mean, you know, flies have a fascinating history. You know, they were the first animal into space, obviously. Uh, has to put up spies, flies, because you can see the whole life cycle in a short number of weeks, bring them back down and see whether, you know, what happened to them. You know, much easier to clean up after a few hundred flies than it would be a few hundred dogs in a spacecraft. Um, and it was the second animal after human to have its genome mapped. I mean, the fly has got a fascinating past and a fascinating future. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I'll take a couple of things from this conversation. The fact that this is an example of mimicking one of nature's processes, and it's clear exactly why insects have so many advantages as a source of protein in the food system. Also, that story about the moment when Jason had almost given up and then had that one observation that unlocked the secret to getting insects to breed. Stay tuned for much more like this. It would mean a lot to us if you subscribed, rated and shared our podcast across all of the usual channels. And we hope to see you on the next episode of our podcast.